This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money Markets. I'm Dan from Shares. With me is Laura from AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back from holiday as well. Thank you very much. And this week, we're also with Ryan Hughes from AJ Bell. Hello there. And we're going to look at the news everyone's talking about, which is what's happening with the Woodford Income Fund. We'll also talk about how you can teach your kids about money and changes in the peer-to-peer sector. So, first things first, the news about Neil Woodford closing his funds has been pretty much everywhere. But let's look at what it actually means for investors. So, Ryan, why don't you start with, for anyone who's been living under a rock, what actually happened? So uh, the Woodford Equity Income Fund, uh, it was announced that the fund had suspended from dealing. Uh, so that means no buying, no selling, uh, or indeed no transfers um, for uh, a period, initial period of 28 days. Uh, and it's announced that because of concerns over the amount of liquidity that's in the fund, so cash to you and I, uh, over worries that it may not be able to pay back uh, people who have asked to redeem their units uh, over a, a, a period. And so how did this happen? Basically, there was large outflows on the funds, weren't there? Investors wanting to pull their money. Yeah, and the, the fund has been suffering outflows probably for about the last two years. Uh, and it looks like over the last few months that that's accelerated. Uh, and as that's accelerated, the amount of cash that's been held in the fund has fallen. Uh, and at the same time, the manager hasn't been able to sell the underlying stock fast enough to be able to meet those redemptions. And as a result... Uh, the the ACD, so that's the authorised corporate director, that's the, the company that actually operates the fund, have taken a decision that it's the right thing to do for existing investors to suspend the fund to make sure that the value of the assets within there is protected and not doesn't suffer a disproportionate fall. Does that happen a lot then, if people... Uh, suspending funds or is this quite a rare it it is a rare event probably uh, the best example is just after the Brexit referendum uh, where a number of property funds uh, suspended for the same reason investors were withdrawing money uh, and the property manager couldn't sell the the buildings fast enough to pay those investors back so what's he going to do in this 28 days or potentially longer that the fund is closed is he using that time to sell investments yeah so initially it's been announced as a 28 day suspension and will be reviewed after that during this period it effectively buys him some time to be able to reposition the portfolio uh, to sell some of the underlying positions and he's announced that he will sell the um, the illiquid stock so that's the very small companies that he owns and also the unlisted companies that he owns uh, and to reinvest those proceeds into large companies so FTSE 100 type companies and also to hold some in cash so that the portfolio then has sufficient liquidity to pay back investors who want to get their money back but I think it's we should recognise that it may take longer than that initial 28-day period that they've announced. So if he's selling some of the sort of the unquoted or the privately owned businesses or stakes in them, um, is there a risk that he won't get a good price? Because if the, if the market knows that he's um, he has to, to sell, um, is, is there a risk that actually the, the investors could lose out by him 
not getting fair value. Mm. Effectively, that's what's been happening the last few weeks, mm. uh, in that the market has known he's been having to sell to meet redemptions, and therefore the price of the underlying stocks has been hit accordingly. By putting the fund into suspension, he basically buys himself a longer period of time to be able to do that. So he's not forced to accept poor pricing, and he can be a little bit more patient uh, in doing that, but absolutely, given the size of the positions he has in some companies uh, and the fact that some of these are very illiquid, he's got to find a buyer for these stocks. Uh, it could easily be that the value of some of those stocks um, is hit as he sells them. And so, any investor that's in the fund will be thinking, What should I do? But essentially, there's nothing they can do at this stage, is there? They can't get their money out, they can't invest more money at this stage if they saw it as a bargain opportunity. So they just kind of have to sit tight. Don't Correct. They? I mean, you've got to be patient in this situation. So the suspension is there for a reason. It's to protect the value of the investment for those existing investors. And so while it never feels like it's a good thing that this happens, those investors, I think there's an element of should recognise that this has been done to make sure that they aren't disproportionately affected by other people selling out of the fund. Uh, but yes, they can't do much uh, at the moment other than, than, than sit and wait and, and look for updates from Woodford in terms of how the transition is going, uh, whether there's any indication as to how long it will last. Uh, but we would expect to see some fairly frequent updates from the company on, as, to, as to how that, this whole repositioning of the portfolio is, 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 is going along. So I guess the, the, another key question is why have people sort of been putting in orders to, to sell out the fund? This is down to performance of... Um, his portfolio, he, he's, he's just simply been picking the wrong stocks, is it? Yeah, and the fund launched five years ago and actually got off to a very good start. And so for the first three years of its life was outperforming uh, its peers uh, and the market actually very, very well. And so unsurprisingly, uh, lots and lots of people invested in the fund. In fact, the fund size grew to a, just over 10 billion at its peak two years ago. But after that period, really performance started to wane. There were a few stocks uh, that really took a hit so uh, Provident being being one of those the, the lending firm it was very high profile uh, and the AA and, and, and other stocks in the portfolio that really suffered and some of the small cap stocks also uh, took a hit and so performance has struggled the last two years uh, and as as it's continued to struggle as we see with lots and lots of funds when they go through poor performances investors choose to take their money elsewhere uh, and it's just so happened that this has been over such a prolonged period uh, that it, over that two-year period, the fund size has actually shrunk now to less than four billion. So, with money coming out and p poor performance, yes, a fall of six billion in a fund is a, is a really considerable change in a two-year period. And how much of it is that he's made the wrong picks, which every fund manager can do and have a long period of doing, uh, or how much is it that his kind of investment style and and the markets at the moment are, are against him? Um, it's a bit of both, I think, is probably the, the, the fairest answer. So Neil Woodford invests in out of... When he's looking at the large cap stocks, he's traditionally invested in out-of-favour businesses that other people are, uh, are shunning. Uh, and yeah, that can be a... You need to be patient and it can be a painful way of investing because you're buying into areas that the market hates. Uh, and so you do need to think, be patient in that approach. So he's been buying into those types of stocks and some of those haven't done well, uh, but he would always argue it's a long-term... Uh, position that he's taking and we would agree that investing is a long-term business uh, but also some of those early stage smaller companies unlisted companies some some of the healthcare companies you know that are looking for major drug cures just haven't worked out 
uh, and, and have really been hit as well. So it's, it's a bit of style out of favour and some stock-specific issues that have really caused the poor performance uh, there. But as a broader point for me, I think also, and those who listen to the podcast regularly, and I'm sure there are many of you that do, you'll have heard me talk before about the importance of understanding what you are investing in. Uh, and so the fact that this fund is so heavily invested in small companies and unlisted companies should come as no surprise to anybody because Woodford is more transparent than any manager in the market. He publishes his full portfolio and has done since launch and told everyone this is exactly how the fund would be invested. So if, if, if that's come as a surprise to people recently, um, yeah, perhaps it's a case of not having done uh, enough due diligence before you've invested to really understand how the fund would be positioned. Would you think that people have looked back to when he was at Invesco and said, saw that he was, he was he used to invest in really large liquid companies and just assumed that's what he was going to continue to do? Um, yeah. Because you know, there's been some sort of suggestions. Has he changed his investment process to, to now be this, this sort of more patient style? Um, I mean, I know a couple of years ago he came out sort of with this sort of statement saying he he is very important to to through, through difficult periods to stick with your sort of investment discipline he said that the temptation was to take the easy option to hide in the strategy that everyone else is doing um and then then sort of the fuss and, and criticism would go away but he said that would be a betrayal of his investment principles mm. so um you know is he still now sticking to what he said he's always going to do or has something changed so there's two answers to that question. Firstly, is the fund the same as... Is he running this fund the same as he ran the fund at Invesco before he left? Well, the fund is positioned very differently. So Invesco fund was a large mega cap fund with some small caps. This fund is very different. It's got a much bigger weight to small caps. I think arguably he's still investing in the same style, but his emphasis has been much further down the cap scale in the Woodford Equity Income Fund than it has been when he was at Invesco. But he's always been very, very open about that. But actually, on last week's podcast, we talked about Fundsmith and the fact that not all managers' skills can transfer to different areas and running different types of strategies when we were talking about Terry Smith. And I think yeah, this might be a, a case in point here where effectively running a fund that's so well-weighted towards small cap and illiquid yet may not have been... Uh, may not be perfectly suited to Woodford's traditional style of fund management that he's done for the last 20 years. And I think there are signs to Dan's point about kind of whether he's sticking with that style or shifting. There do seem to be some signs that he is going to move back more back into that large cap end of the spectrum. So Woodford, we've talked a lot about um, for, for all of his faults that he is very transparent and he's released a video after the fund suspension explaining to investors why they've shut the fund and what he's going to do. Um, and in that, he said that he was going to take the unquoted, so the private company holdings down to zero, so get rid of all of them, um, and then reinvest back in FTSE 350 companies, but predominantly in FTSE 100 companies. So that tends to suggest a bit more of a shift back to more of the style that he was running at Invesco rather than the recent style where he's been in more in unquoted and, and small companies. Absolutely. And the equity income fund has been the fund that's been running a slightly different style. He also has another fund called the Income Focus Fund, which actually is run much more like the money he ran at Invesco. Uh, and, and it looks like from what we've heard from Woodford over the last 24 hours, that as you say, he's t looking to turn the equity income fund 
back into a little bit more like the type of fund that he ran previously and perhaps it'll equity income will run more like the income focus fund going forwards which actually you touched on a good point there talking about the other funds that he runs so he also runs equity income focus and he has an investment trust patient capital Mm -hmm. so investors in those can still trade in and out like they usually would they're not affected but are they affected in any other ways by this closure and by the i mean there's been so much media attention on on woodford over the past few days slightly alarmingly so i think more media attention than i thought there would be so is there mm. any kind of knock-on effect for that for investors yeah in so funds? the income focus fund is absolutely open and for buying and selling and that's that's they've communicated that really clearly and that's an open-ended fund and is daily traded the patient capital investment trust is a very different structure it's an investment trust where the shares trade on the stock market and so it's not affected by the same liquidity problems that an open-ended fund is so a very very different structure but I think it's fair to say there may well be some knock-on consequences on this because particularly with patient capital and the equity income fund, there is actually quite a lot of crossover in the holdings. So some of the holdings in the investment trust are also held in the equity income fund. And if he's being forced to sell those holdings in the equity income fund, it may well suppress the price of those equities that are held in the patient capital fund. And actually, you've seen over the last 24 hours, the patient capital Uh, investment trust price being hit quite hard as investors have kind of drawn the link between the two uh, and they've sold down the investment trust. There's also that this the income fund owns uh, a big stake in the investment trust as well there's sort of this speculation that they may sell that stake as well I'm sure that's probably contributed to to some of this sort of derating of the investment trust on the stock market. Mm. I mean two months ago when uh, you invited me into the podcast uh, before I think it was to talk about Woodford moving uh, some of the un- um, illiquid holdings to the investment trust. We only so get you on to talk about Woodford. It we feels, know it's it, your favourite it topic. It does feel that way at the moment. <laughs> um, but but so, yeah, obviously he'd already recognised the problem uh, and was trying to deal with it. It's just events move really quickly uh, and too fast for him to be able to deal with it in the way that that he wanted. Uh, but there is definitely a, a link between the two and it'll be interesting to see how the share price of patient capital performs over the over the few weeks to see if those underlying equities really do take a hit. So what about if you're not invested in any of these funds, you're a bystander on this and you think, wait a minute, this is a great chance to snap up a discount and a bargain. On the investment trust, the investment trust moved to quite a wide discount yesterday, um, uh, and it was over 20% at the time of, uh, of recording this podcast, but obviously discounts move around quite considerably. It's moved for that to that level really because I think investors expect the assets within the investment trust to uh, take a hit as, as he sells. And so for some, they may see that as a bargain. I think what we can likely see is some volatility around that over the coming weeks. Uh, but if people still believe in the Woodford approach, uh, think there's some really exciting healthcare and unlisted and early stage companies in that portfolio, it may well be that you can buy them at a significant discount to their, their true asset value. I guess one final point to consider is that investment trusts actually have a, a board of directors and that board has the power to effectively fire the asset manager and bring someone else in. Um, I, I did see some suggestion in, in the press that uh, one option that could potentially be is that, that the, Neil Woodford is, is no longer the person who would be running 
Woodford patient capital. But to me, that seems a bit a step too far um, because the strategy of the patient capital investment trust is always long term. And, you know, and, and he's sticking to, to what he's always said he was going to do, wasn't he? He hasn't done anything different. Absolutely. Patient capital is being run in exactly the manner that, 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 that has been explained uh, from day one is a long-term investment, investing in early-stage companies uh, that will take their time to come through. You know, the clue is in the name. Uh, I would be very surprised if that was a course of action that the board took on the investment trust. But uh, we live in interesting times, as they say. And I think that's probably one thing that's worth pointing out. There's been so much um, media attention on this and so many column inches filled with it. And while lots of it has been very informative and has been asking the right questions and getting good views on it, there has been a certain amount of... um, I don't want to say scaremongering because maybe that sounds too far, but I think there's an element where investors should take some of the stuff with a pinch of salt and not be panicked by some of the reports. Yeah, it's it's always important to take a step back, think rationally, not panic sell. Obviously, in the case of extra income, you can't at the moment. uh, But think about what role this fund is doing in your portfolio if you hold it. Think about what's the right course of action for you when it when it unsuspends. Is it the right thing for you to sell, or actually is it the right thing to be a little bit more patient and, and hold and let some of the uh, the trading around the fund die down? Um, but yeah, I think you know, do your own research and think about your investment strategy rather than relying on what you're reading in in the papers, where there has absolutely been quite a lot of um, yeah, excitement excitement slash hysteria. <laughs> so away from Woodford mania, it seems every week is is a week dedicated to something. And you know, for example, this week is Rabbit Awareness Week, apparently. So, but, but next week we've got My Money Week, which is about promoting financial education in schools. And that's something that we're, we're big supporters of. Um, so I thought we'd, we'd have a little chat about tips on how to educate kids on money. So I mean, Laura, what what would you reckon? Put how how do you get the the kids to be money savvy? I don't have any children. I don't really hang out with kids, so I'm probably not the best person to ask this of. And I definitely wasn't money savvy when I was a kid. I used to get pocket money. And so I think one of the interesting things is when you guys were kids, did you get pocket money in return for doing chores or did you just get pocket money for getting pocket money? I had to earn my pocket money. Absolutely. Unloading the and dishwasher that's why you've got such a up. strong work ethic now. Completely, and what, hence I unload the dishwasher here at AJ Bell. So that's uh, yeah. <laughs> We're com- not paying you for that. No, no. <laughs> I, just, I can't remember. I, I I don't think I had to do anything. I was sort of, obviously had to help around the house, but um, but I think I do like this idea of if you do a chore, you if you earn the money, I'm sure you sort of think about it in a different way. You're thinking, actually, you know, I, I've deserved this, I've worked hard. And, you know, I certainly for my own children, I try and get them mm. to do stuff to earn things rather than simply saying, here's an allowance, you know, there you go. So, yes, I do, I do think it's important, to, you know, if you are a parent, to try and um, help educate children by, by getting them to do something. And I think that uh, certainly it's it's the direction I, I, I am attempting to take. Mm. And sometimes it works and sometimes also the kids grumble about, oh, I don't want to do this. Why should I have to do that? Um, to be fair, I do yeah. that now as an adult, yeah. though, to my husband. So. <laughs> <laughs> but pocket money is such a tricky thing, isn't it? Like, how how do you decide how much to to give your kids for pocket money? And does it increase with age? I think mine increased with age and so then because my sister was older she always got slightly more than me which always annoyed me 
Yeah, I mean, I asked this question on social media um, yesterday, just a bit of prep for this podcast. And, and one person said they had an 8, a 10 and a 12-year-old and they all got the same amount of money. Which And that, and that really did surprise me, particularly between an 8 and 12-year-old. You would think that they would definitely put their foot down and say, um, the older one will say, no, I'm sorry, I want, want more. But um, Depends what the figure was. Yeah, I, th- I think it was £5. <laughs> £5 pounds a week? That's, I wow. mean, it's, it, it's quite... That's certainly, uh, yeah, certainly a lot more than my daughter gets. Yeah. yeah. We won't Absolutely. tell her. No. Don't let her listen no. to this. Well, <laughs> she does She does listen to podcasts as part of her financial education. So, uh, she's, yeah, whether she'll thank me for that in future, I'm not quite <laughs> sure. But I do have a really strong view uh, on financial education for young people because it's such a problem that young people, generally young people's first experience of real money uh, is a negative one. It's about perhaps going to college, going to university. It's about debt. It's about credit cards. It's about overdrafts it's not a positive relationship with money so the more we can do to to teach and educate young people about the importance of saving about the importance of investing uh, I mean for example and my daughter when she saves up her pocket money we take her to the bank and she pays in money to her savings account you know, we make her go to the counter and fill it in and she's got the positive relationship with looking in the passbook and seeing how much it's growing so that's the kind of thing that we try and do with our nine-year-old that's, that's that's an excellent uh, habit. I mean, I, t- I remember I took my kids to to open up their account and they got their free piggy bank. But ever since then, um, like when, when they see the bank's name on on an advert on TV, they go, "Oh, that's my bank." So obviously um, something's got through, mm-hmm. but they don't ever say. Yeah, Dad, take us to the bank. I don't think anyone's. No, I, 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 I don't think my daughter's saying take me to the bank. But when the, yeah, when the piggy bank gets a little bit full, then it might yeah. be a case of taking half out and putting it in the bank and and yeah. letting her going and buying something that she wants. And that's the other thing is about the importance of understanding that. She has to save for something that she wants. And if she wants something that's too expensive, mm. she can't have it. So just creating the, that whole relationship about the importance of saving uh, and being at the importance of being able to afford something, just small things that, that we do with our daughter. Because I, I, was, I was in a shop the other day and they had, and there was, I reckon it was, there was a boy about five or six and he was with a group of friends and he had two pounds. He wanted to buy a magazine that was four quid. Um, and his friends were going like, you, know, you haven't got enough money. You know, you have to just, you know, either earn more or get something else. And he just stood there, but he's saying, but I want it. And of course, the shopkeeper didn't say anything. But I thought it was quite interesting. And then later in the evening, I was I was somewhere where there was loads of um, elderly people who were, who were chatting to this little boy there. Um, and they're doing little magic tricks, of course, taking the, the money, the coin from behind their ear under the foot. And he was getting so excited, but they were excited as well. The idea that he, he was like, he sort of believed that they were doing magic, but he earned about 14 pounds. I thought it was amazing. But then, and he was five, and he, I just saw him, he, he, he sat down, put all the money out and he counted up immediately. And he could do, and this numerous, numeracy skills were absolutely amazing. So I was thinking, you know, it's, it's, it's the little things in your life which you can actually do to help the children sort of um, build up these skills. It's not all about going to school and the, you know, specific classes about it. Um, I think, I there think there's like a big debate around how much you involve kids in conversations about money because some people say that kids shouldn't have to worry about things like money when they're younger and they should just enjoy their childhood. But then there's another camp of people that think that if you talk about the fact that like, oh, we're going on holiday and we've saved up for this and this is a special treat or we're going out for dinner and, and this is quite expensive and this is a treat that that helps kids understand that money doesn't grow 
on trees, as my dad used to mm. always tell me, <laughs> and probably still does. Mm. No, absolutely right. But this in, in the My Money Week, I was having a look to see what they're doing, and they're sort of sending these videos to schools across England. Um, it's split into primary and secondary schools. So the primary kids are going to look at sort of attitudes towards spending and saving, um, and they've got little different characters. About, let's say what, what this is a girl that wants um, a, f- a football shirt, and, and they talk, and, and the children in the class will look at what how much money she has and what's a typical spending habit so does she buy slime um sweets and all sort of the the the, the sort of playground playground crazes um and then they'll sort of say what what should this girl give up in order to be able to buy the thing that she wants and i think that the purpose is they're trying to make it not like a maths class Mm. they're trying to put Mm. something that reflects and it connects with your your life and with the with the secondary students they're going to look at borrowing peer pressure and value for money and it's it's about the concepts of um someone wants to go to a music festival they've got they've earned some money in a cafe um and they they've they want to buy some wellies but their friends are saying no you've got to buy these you know, more trendy wellies and stuff like that um and then like this person says well someone will take me but i've got to keep five pounds aside for petrol each day so you know these are real things that will be affecting people um particularly sort of 15 16 year olds mm. i'm sure um and I, I really like the idea of this sort of putting it into sort of they can understand it so it's not simply um here's a chalkboard and like today we're going to do you know subdivision or multiplication it's just much more relatable isn't it and it's actually you can then apply it to real life situations rather than it seeing seeming like this kind of far away remote thing you actually think about how you're spending your money and martin lewis has done lots in this area he's developed a textbook that he's given out for free to schools but you can just download it um for free online which i did yesterday and was looking through it not not to teach myself you understand but um but i actually think that's quite handy for for any parents that want to teach their kids some of it is a bit more advanced and might be better for kind of um people going off to university whereas some of the stuff is a bit more basic and might be better for for your kids Mm. There is actually a negative as well, I think, in the way that we're moving to a cashless society, which is the physical relationship with money is very different now for young people. And I remember you know, saving up your ones and two peas, or in your case, Dan, maybe your half pennies, it's slightly, yes. uh, slightly <laughs> older. Um, you know, saving those up uh, over time and having that physical relationship with money and then taking it to the bank. Now it's all about a contactless card and you haven't got you know, looking in your wallet and finding it's empty because there's always money there because you've always got the card. So I think there's a very we have to be careful in the way that we that society changes with the cashless area that actually young people don't have the same connection with it in the way that perhaps we all did when we grew up. And kids can have that now. So there's these um, accounts that you can set up where they're basically like preloaded debit cards and people pay their kids' pocket money onto these cards and kids can go into shops and, and use these cards. And I know quite a few people, mm. parents are now using them which probably adds to your thing of um, it being one step removed. Although the argument for that is that there's an app and you can see at all times how much money and you can section out your money into different pots and stuff But that's great for that age. It's the the even younger, you know, saving your one and two peas. Yeah, that's Mm. the kind of thing you you did when you were really young and you watch it in the, the jar get fuller and fuller and excited it gets full and you you count it all out you know that kind of thing i think just doesn't really happen anymore i might be wrong but it, it still happens in my house good, thankfully good. as i'm still persevering with my one piece savings challenge um, <laughs> but it's like you know one of my daughters she does love you know if we had a, a box of coins she just loved to just have you know to see what's in there and add it up and mm. um you know whilst it's only like five minutes of time she'll inevitably go back and be watching netflix again um it's it's just nice isn't it to the, the skills to be able to just quickly identify coins, count them, and then think what you can do with it. Yep. 
So finally, the regulators announced changes to the peer-to-peer -peer sector this week that affects investors. Uh, we've been talking about the marketing of these peer-to-peer -peer or sort of P2P products before on the podcast. Um, but now, Laura, what's, what's, what's sort of changed now with these new rules? So the Financial Conduct Authority um, announced this week that it's going to bring in a few changes. It's restricting the marketing of peer-to-peer -peer products. Um, it's also making people answer a series of questions to test their knowledge before they're allowed to invest in them. And it's limiting newcomer investors to only having 10% as a maximum of their what they term investable wealth in these peer-to-peer -peer products. So overall, it's the regulator saying that it's slightly concerned about the level that some people are going into these peer-to-peer -peer products. And it wants to claw that back a bit. So to stop the kind of mass advertising of it. And I think essentially to stop people seeing it as an alternative to cash and putting money into peer-to-peer -peer products in the same way that they might put money in a cash mm. savings account. I think, yeah, uh, it's sort of highlighting it's investing, not um, not depositing your, your cash in a savings account, isn't it? So yeah, and I think some of the marketing, I mean, we talked about it before around ISA season, there was loads and loads of ads on the tube for some of these more kind of more alternative products. And lots of them were pitching themselves as an alternative to cash, but offering 8% or 10%. And um, at that point, you, as an investor, you've got to think, well, no one's going to offer you that level of returns for nothing. And so you've got to be taking a sizable amount of risk. So, yeah, new new investors are now going to have to answer questions to make sure that they understand that they could lose all of their money, that it's not covered by the financial services compensation scheme, that the returns could go up and down. Um, and then, yeah, they will be limited by this 10%. The 10% rule is a little bit weird because it's a self-certification thing. Yeah, so you declare it yourself. Work, yeah. it, so it's a little odd and it's for... Um, new investors. So I think if you've invested in two P2P products over the past two years, then you don't have to do this. So it feels slightly woolly around the edges, but it's one of those things where when it comes in in December this year, I guess we'll see a bit more how platforms actually enact that. Well, I think that's everything for this week. So thanks a lot for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, then make sure you review and subscribe to it or just recommend it to a friend. And we will see you next week. Thanks. Thanks very much. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.